Welcome to KPMG's Investment Management Perspectives Podcast. In this episode, we discuss the SEC's recent proposal to modernize the fund valuation framework. Hello, and welcome to KPMG's podcast on the SEC's recent rule proposal to modernize the fund valuation framework. This is part of our ongoing podcast series. I am Sean McKee, National Leader for our Public Investment Management Practice. With me today are KPMG partners Matt Giordano, Chad Gazillo, and John Russo. Each of these individuals is an alumna of the SEC and has familiarity with the SEC's long-standing efforts to modernize the valuation framework. They will share their insights with you today. I will ask each to say a few words about themselves, starting with Matt. Thanks, Sean. This is Matt Giordano. I'm a partner in our Boston office and also help Sean lead our public investment management practice. Uh, Prior to rejoining KPMG, I spent five years at the SEC where I finished up my tour of duty as the chief accountant in the Division of Investment Management. Great. Chad? Great. Thanks, Sean. This is Chad Gazzola. I'm an audit partner in our Philadelphia office. it's great to be with you all today, and I uh, I spent three years with the SEC uh, from 2007 to 2010. Wonderful. And rounding out our lineup is John Russo. John? Thank you, Sean. Uh, I'm a partner in our financial services practice in Philadelphia, and I focus on mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, and business development companies. And I also spent time at the SEC from 2010 to 2012 serving as an assistant chief accountant. So, Matt, we're going to jump right in, and uh, I'd ask, can you provide us with color on the history of this proposal and its recent release? Sure, Sean, and I guess almost to take a little bit of a step back, right, the valuation of a mutual fund's investments is probably the most important aspect or maybe the second most important act aspect outside of existence for a mutual fund. So valuation was a priority to Congress when they enacted the 1940 Act, um, and it'll continue to be a priority for regulatory agencies like the SEC as long as mutual funds and investment companies exist. And when you think about valuation guidance in general, right, the valuation guidance right now is in a number of different places. It's in the 40 Act itself. It's in the old accounting staff releases, 113 and 118 from the 60s and 70s. Um, There's guidance that's buried in staff speeches and letters, and finally in enforcement cases. So if you think about the the progression and how this valuation guidance has moved forward, I think one of the, the main items to focus on or to think about is really some of the recent enforcement cases. And one of the most recent enforcement cases against a board related to valuation was the Morgan Keegan case. And, you know, my personal view is that that spooked a number of directors after that case, and they wanted to make sure that they were doing enough when it came to the oversight of valuation. Um, and, and there there seemed to be this want for more direction and more clarity around the oversight role at that time, and then it died down for a while. And if you think about what's going on today with the global markets from COVID-19, including some of the turbulence and some of the volatility that's out there in the market right now, 
now is a good time for the SEC to give directors additional clarity on what a regulatory agency would expect from directors in regards to their duties and obligations around the oversight evaluation. So I think it, it, it's kind of a twofold, right? The valuation guidance was in multiple spots, and with everything going on right now in the markets, it, it makes sense to tighten up some of that guidance and give more clarity. Chad and John, like Matt, you've seen this evolve over time both with your time with the SEC and also with KPMG. Can each of you provide some color around your involvement and what you've noticed about the rulemaking efforts? Chad, we'll start with you first. Sure, Sean. You know, I, like I said, I started at the commission in 2007, and that was really the time where we are coming out of some of the market timing issues and, and fair value guidance and sort of the desire for Additional guidance was a priority for the staff and, and certainly on, on the commission's list. Um, there was this realization, though, that the existing guidance really needed to be modernized, and it, it really needed to address how funds were investing in more sophisticated financial instruments and really the expansion into new, new markets, emerging markets. The only commission guidance that, that existed at that point was really in the ASRs, and all of the other valuation guidance was, was staff guidance or, or came from enforcement actions. In the early days of the project was really, you know, bringing all of that guidance together, the ASRs combined with uh, the staff guidance that, was, that came through letters to the industry, and, you know, those concepts that were embedded in enforcement actions, and, and really build this comprehensive, uh, codified guidance, and, and the way I would categorize what was what that looked like, it was really a, a rules-based uh, standard is, is what was was established. It was filled with examples of how the board might go about, you know, making fair value determinations in in certain circumstances. I think there were two big events that really shaped the way the staff thought about and, and continued their thinking as as they progressed to where we are today. And, and that was the issuance of FAS 157, which is codified in, in topic 820 of the FASB codification, and the credit crisis. You know, both of those, you know, to me had tremendous impact. First of all, it, it delayed some of the momentum. Um, in, in where the, the guidance started in 2007 and, you know, really resulted in having the staff think more deeply about sort of what would happen in, in, a, in a crisis situation. What, what should the board's role be in those, those types of items? So ultimately, you know, those two events, in my view, you know, really shaped where we were back in 2007 when these initial projects really started to, you know, where we are, are today and what the, the staff ultimately proposed in, in this rule. Yes, Chad. I, I think those two developments as well as other evolutions to fair value uh, have really caused a lot of this modernization. I think that title is, is so apropos, the modernization of the framework uh, as fair value has evolved over time. 
John, any additional thoughts or color around uh, your involvement and what you noticed uh, as you saw this rulemaking evolve? Sure, Sean. Um, so as I mentioned, I was at the SEC starting in 2010 after the financial crisis, and evaluation was still a high priority at the commission. However, Congress had mandated that the SEC really had to focus on the Dodd-Frank rulemaking that was required after the crisis for a period of time. Uh, so, however, rulemaking for money market funds was also a high priority at the time when I was at, at the SEC. And so the SEC did take the opportunity to include some valuation guidance in the 2014 final release for money market funds. Um, and that really related to the to evaluated prices and matrix pricing and for the use of pricing services and their oversight by the board. And so I think this was really a recognition by the SEC of the importance of pricing services and how critical they had become in the process related to valuation. And although this um, that guidance may fall into the category that Matt mentioned as buried in different various rules and regulations and releases at the SEC. Indeed, that's another very important market infrastructure evolution that's kind of led to this modernizing uh, of the framework. Matt, one of the things Im embedded in the guidance is, is terminology and helping people understand the difference in, in terminology and what it means. Can you help our audience understand what is a readily available market quotation versus what is fair valued? Sure, Sean. And this is an interesting part of the release, and this one kind of caught me off guard a little. So what essentially happened as part of this proposal is the staff said that a readily available market quotation is is a market quotation that's a quoted price in an active market for an identical security. And then what they did was they tied it to gap. So essentially, this is only a level one security would be considered a readily available market quotation, and everything else falls into this fair value bucket. And I, I believe that the staff will receive some comments on this because I think I think from a practical standpoint, most boards and management believe that there were a number of level two securities that would be considered readily available market quotations. And, and this release really changes that. So for example, um, a treasury right now, right, a treasury may not be a readily available market quotation. A, um, foreign equity where you're using a fair value factor. Um, even if it's just a small deviation from the price, may not be considered a readily available market quotation. So I, I do think that there will be um, some comments that come back on this one. Because if it's not readily um, available, if it's not a readily available market quotation, you're, you're in this fair valued world, and you have to be making sure that you do um, everything that's been prescribed by the SEC and everything that's in your policies and procedures. So it's it's a little bit different than it was in the past. Agreed. And I think it's an interesting kind of debate because in one in one aspect, the use of the terminology directly correlates to the accounting framework, which is the basis under which they've made clear they want the fair value to work. So do you live with that basis for this determination, or do you do a different basis, which would be a, a regulatory or a legal basis? So there's there's pros and cons to, to each. Um, 
obviously tethering it to the accounting uh, provides one consistent framework, whereas if you go the other way, you have kind of two frameworks that you're battling uh, against. Um, but it's, it's an interesting debate. John, let me turn to you and talk about, have you talk about what are the proposal's requirements for determining fair value and good faith by the board of directors and management? Yeah, so the, it is a little prescriptive. There are uh, five requirements that would be included, and these would apply whether these uh, whether the evaluation process is delegated to the advisor or is performed by the board. And so the first, it really starts with an assessment of the valuation risks in the funds. So the the first requirement would be for the to require the fund to periodically assess the material risks in the portfolio. As far as specifying the types of material risks other than material conflicts of interest, the rule does not specify the specific valuation risks that would need to be addressed. And so I think this flexibility will help boards or the advisor tailor the valuation risks based on the investments that are held by the fund. Second, the rule would require a fund's fair valuation process to include several requirements related to the selection of fair value, fair value methodologies and the testing of those methodologies. So these requirements would include selecting and applying a methodology that is applied in a consistent manner for the types of investments that are held, including the key inputs and assumptions for those investments. It would also have to be forward-looking so that when they would select methodologies that would apply to new investments that may be held by the funds. And the proposal states that these methodologies should be consistent with the current accounting standards in ASC 820 in order to comply with the rule. And I think this is another recognition that the SEC is looking to the standard setters at the FASB and the PCUB when they're, when, when they're writing their rules. And the rule would also require funds to monitor for situations where the quotations may, not, may no longer be readily available and would require a good faith valuation. So you would select the methodologies, and then you'd also have to be required to periodically test those methodologies to ensure they are continue to be appropriate and accurate. And the, the rule does not prescribe the types of tests. It did give some examples, such as back testing or calibration to help identify trends or bias or potential issues with the service providers or pricing services. So although they didn't prescribe any specific tests, we believe these examples of back testing and calibration are already used by funds today. The third requirement is, with, is related to pricing services. So again, the use of pricing services is a critical component of the valuation process and the procedures of investment funds. So the SEC has included both a risk assessment of the securities held by the funds and the oversight of the pricing services and price challenges as key components of this, of this framework. And so I think this risk assessment framework is aligned with the auditing standards that have been issued by the PCB, including the recent standard on auditing for value estimates and the use of pricing services. And lastly, the fourth and fifth requirements. The fourth is that the proposed rule requires documented fair value policies and procedures. And the fifth is related to record keeping, which will require the fund to maintain documentation of the specific methodologies, the key inputs, and the assumptions that were used to value their securities. Great. So Chad, obviously those requirements uh, are helpful. Uh, but prescriptive in a lot of ways. How, how does the board and its delegates go about performing these requirements? So Sean, it's, it's interesting. So the board has three options under this proposal. They, they can continue to value you know, all the positions within the, the portfolio under the 
the purview of what John just uh, discussed and, and make sure they're meeting all those requirements. They can assign certain security positions to the advisor. They can assign all security positions to the advisor and have them value them under those, those items. So the, the board's first going to have to really determine what approach they gonna, they're going to want to fall under and what they're going to want to follow. You know, I think it's very likely that boards will probably assign the responsibility to the advisor, um, and that's, that's just my view. Obviously, boards will, will consult with their legal counsel to make those determinations. But you know, when the board does assign the valuation of the positions to the advisor, they shift their role a bit where under the, the statute today, they have responsibility to determine the value. Under this proposed rule, they become an overseer, and, and their responsibility is that of oversight. And, and I think that is what most boards really view them, their role is today. So I think this is a, a really a, a shift in the right direction. But I guess you have to step back and say, well, what does this mean? to be an overseer or provide this oversight. And when you go through and you read the proposal, it, it's, there is some very clear thoughts laid out by the commission. And they continue to want boards to take a skeptical and an objective view. And in doing so, they really need to understand the risks that are associated with valuation. And, you know, so it's very grounded in risk assessment and understanding the types of investments that a portfolio is going to engage in or that perhaps they will engage in. So there is some forward-looking aspects uh, that are provided in here. You know, certainly when there is a higher risk to a security, more scrutiny is going to be required. And, you know, just by way of example, and, and this concept is, is in, in the uh, proposal, when there is a, a private equity investment that has uh, unobservable inputs and it's being valued by an internal model, that is going to certainly have more scrutiny required than if you had a security trading on a foreign exchange. So there is certainly that, that embedded concept in, in the standard. Uh, there's also going to be uh, quarterly reporting that the boards are going to have to receive, uh, that the advisors are going to have to provide them you know, certain types of information so they can continue to meet their responsibilities to be this, this overseer. And you know, what are those types of things? It's, it's really assessing you know, material conflicts. You know, and what types of, of things would a board, you know, be thinking about in, in doing so? The, you know, one example I, I, I always think about when, when boards should think about where conflicts could exist, it's, you know, the selection of uh, pricing vendors or, you know, broker quotes and, and how are brokers being uh, determined on obtaining information to pro provide pricing to certain asset classes. Uh, so that is, that is an area that is also uh, included in the, uh, in the proposal. They're going to have to receive reports to understand if there are any material changes to fair value methods. You know, understand the results of, of testing of, of fair value. Uh, back testing was the example, as John discussed a little bit earlier. 
Yeah, allocation of resources. Does management uh, at the advisor have the appropriate level of resources to conduct uh, valuation uh, procedures? You know, were there any changes to pricing vendors, and and why why was there that change made? Uh, how how are they overseeing pricing services? And this would be a, a prime area where boards might want to ask about price overrides, and you know, how has the price challenging process you know, really come about in, in terms of the advisor overriding a price because of a, of a price challenging, you know, does that result in uh, the selected vendor not necessarily being the best vendor? Are there other alternatives? So the, the proposal really provides a lot of thoughtful uh, recommendations on, on types of reports that uh, boards, you know, may want to receive to conduct this oversight responsibility. Chad, I thought that was right. an, an excellent, I, uh, an excellent highlight. One thing that I would just add, or, or, um, kind of lay around with a little bit of color, is that the staff was very clear that it can't be a passive role, which I think you were getting across, right? And they, they note the Mar the Morgan Keegan case. Um, in that. So the boards need to be active to your point, right? They need to be following up and asking the right questions. And that's where we've really seen enforcement cases and where we've really seen um, folks falter is, is when they're not active enough. So I thought your, your description was perfect there. Yeah, Matt, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I, I think when you, when you read the, the, the proposal, the word skeptical and objective view, uh, it, they're repeated, you know, fairly often when it talks about, I think, what the commission expects of of a board in overseeing and providing that oversight. So, um, you know, I think they're the they're the words and and not taking a passive role, but really being inquisitive, really asking questions, and really understanding what the advisor is providing them. And, you know, is it the right level of information that allows them to be inquisitive and ask questions? So, Matt, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned kind of the old accounting series release uh, guidance from the SEC. Uh, what happens to the old guidance on fair value if the proposal is adopted as written? Yeah, so the way that it works, or that the way that it will work if the guidance is um, adopted is that essentially it'll get rid of the old ASRs um, and it'll get rid of some of the other valuation guidance that's out there. It'll be rescinded. Um, so kind of the key takeaways for me is when you rescind those old ASRs, there is some auditing guidance in ASR 118 that essentially says that you have to value, the auditor has to value 100% of the securities for um, a registered investment company. So that would be gone. It, we would fall, the auditors would fall under the PCAOB rules and essentially be able to sample. Now the question is, will that actually take place? Um, I think that's uh, that remains to be seen. I, I don't know if we'll see major sampling um, and that's because you're going to run into instances where you have, a, let's say, a bond portfolio and you start to get a few differences and then you have to extrapolate those over the portfolio. Um, I, I just think that that would be, that there could attend, potentially be challenges. And I also, what we're hearing from boards is boards like to know we independently valued 100% 
of the portfolio holdings. So that would be a, a change to boards. So although there is this rescission around some of the auditing literature, I don't know if from a practical standpoint that that will have major changes in the near future. Yep, well said. So as we start to wrap up, I, I'd like to kind of ask you about the challenges uh, both from a management perspective and from a board perspective, just at a high level, what are some of the top challenges you're seeing? So let's do the management perspective first and talk about the top few challenges for management. And John, I'll, I'll ask for your thoughts on that. Sure. So I think the top three that come to mind are um, similar. The first is similar with any new policies and procedures. Um, you know, we're documenting the valuation procedures around the, whether it's oversight by the board reporting and monitoring, selecting the methodologies or tests that you're going to use, you're really ensuring that your actions follow your documented policies and procedures. And this could really be an area that's low-hanging fruit for regulators um, when funds are not following their documented policies and procedures. I think that's always, that's always important. Um, I think the second that comes to mind is that you know, this proposed rule really ex expands the scope of what we think of fair value securities um, to essentially include all level two and level three securities, which which could be a change from current practice where you know that line may have been somewhere within the level two bucket, so to speak, under A20. Um, so that change in the scope of the, what's considered a good faith fair value security, as well as the proposed rules over the oversight of pricing services, really could um, require some more effort in the oversight of pricing services. And I think that the third that comes to mind is um, that although this proposal proposal is helpful, and I think it codifies today's practices by funds in a lot of cases, um, it's still going to require finding the right balance of information for oversight by the board without board stepping in the shoes of management and really performing management functions on a daily basis. Great. Matt, anything additional? You know, I think that was a great summary by John. I, I'd say the only thing from a management standpoint that I would layer on there is really I think that the reporting to the board for a lot of these larger mutual fund complexes will, will be very fluid. So it's, it's, it's going to change, right? You may have some reporting that you think will be perfect in your head, and then it'll change to something else, right? And, and making sure that you're changing with it and that the reporting is as um, accurate and robust as possible and that it lines up to what's actually happening. And, and that's where you see folks get in trouble from an enforcement standpoint. Sure. So Chad, as we kind of drive this home, um, what do you see as those top few challenges for the board? I know you hit on, on a few of them earlier, but what do you, what do you think they are? Yeah, I think the first thing is I think the, provo the proposal, it really does provide a much more useful framework for boards. I, I think this actually, you know, hits the mark. Um, with that being said, I, I think there's probably, you know, two things that, that come to mind that are going to continue uh, to be some level of challenging. And I, I'd say they're, they're somewhat minimal. But... You know, I, I think, again, it, it's going to be the right level of information. Are they getting to be skeptical, ask questions, and manage conflicts? And, and is it in the right format? And, 
And I think sometimes we we see that you know you can get information overload very easily, and just because you're getting a lot of information doesn't necessarily mean it's the right information. So I think there's got to be a balance to what the information a board really wants and what they really need to perform their oversight uh, responsibilities. Uh, you know, the, the second item I, I think is is concepts that that Matt touched on in connection with the removal of ASR one eighteen. I, I think. Now, audit committees and boards have, have gotten comfortable that at least one time a year an audit firm is going to come in and audit 100% of the portfolio, and they're going to use a source that is independent from the source that management is using. Uh, that Those types of concepts are not going to be in the audit literature the way they were in, in ASR 118. So. Boards are really going to have to talk to their auditors and, and their audit firms to get a, a good understanding of where do they think their auditors are going to go in once this proposal either is adopted or, or how, do, how are the audit firms thinking about uh, the new auditing standard that's out that will be applied here. So, you know, audit committees may still mandate that I want 100% of the portfolio tested, and you know, I think that 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 may be something that that comes about. I think with automation of audit procedures and uh, how the audit firms are, are using automation, I, I don't think that creates a big issue. I, I, I do think that audit committees and uh, boards of of mutual funds should have that dialogue, though, to make sure they have a, a grasp understanding of of what the firm in, intends to do. Matt, I'll, I'll you know, ask you to see if you have any additional thoughts in, in connection with boards. Yeah, Chad, I, first of all, I think you're right on. This gives an additional clarity to the board's oversight, and I think your summary of that was perfect. I want to just play devil's advocate for one second. Um, I think if you have good counsel and you have um, – you're using your auditors the right way. Not only is there clarity, but you're helping to build out your policies and your procedures, and you're working with the board and with management. Boards should feel more secure. I've heard a lot of folks say that they think what will happen is that this will lead to more enforcement cases, and this, this could potentially lead to more OC deficiency letters. And I agree with that. I mean, you have to make sure that your policies and procedures are spot on and that you're following them. And it does leave this gray area for OC or for enforcement to come in and question you. And I think the key here for a board is to have good counsel and to really, really work with your auditors um, when you're laying out the policies and procedures and the board reporting that goes from the advisor up to the board. Uh, but I, I agree with what you're saying, Chad. It does give much more clarity about the responsibility and the oversight and, and what the regulator expects from the board. Yeah, Matt, what's interesting to me is, is the enforcement action uh, concept. and and. Yeah, I, I do think that that could be, but I think that is more of a risk for advisors now, and it, it almost removes a little bit of the risk for boards. As long as you are conducting your oversight in accordance with, with how the, the statute uh, or the proposed 
uh, role, I should say, lays it out. Uh, it seems like it could be a good thing for, for boards, but it puts more of the onus on uh, the advisor to make sure that they are really following uh, policies and procedures, and those policies and procedures are, are firm and, you know, consistent with, with what's being mandated in this proposal. And I completely agree so long as the board is asking the right questions and asking the right follow-up questions. I, I, I agree with what you're saying. There is um, significantly more onus on the advisor. Well, thanks, guys. That's very helpful. And I'd say, you know, the beautiful part about asking those questions is, is the board doesn't have to do it alone. They've got counsel. They've got auditors. Uh, they've got representatives from pricing services, representatives from other parties. And getting that information and using it and getting the feedback to form those good questions uh, really helps the board kind of fulfill their responsibilities. So that's, that's fantastic. So uh, we're going to wrap this up, and we hope you found this podcast helpful. Uh, we've really enjoyed presenting it for you. And if you desire more information, please reach out to your favorite KPMG partner for more assistance. You're welcome to reach out to any of us. Thanks, and be well. Thank you for listening to KPMG's Investment Management Perspectives podcast. For more information, go to listen.kpmg.us slash imperspectives. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast series to be notified of new episodes.